0: If you have your Bible, will you take it with me, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 15, and we'll move from there into chapter 16. So we won't have a lot of traveling around to doing the scriptures, but we will find it very important, the text that we've chosen. I gotta stop and say just for a minute how much I appreciate the musicians who have come to visit with us this morning and who are part of our congregation to sing and be a part of worship and Dave and Sharon's work and and our other uh, instrumental musicians. I mean, this church is so blessed to have people who are willing to come and be a part of our worship, and I just want to say personally, thank you all for your work. It's uh, much appreciated, at least on my heart anyway. Mark chapter 15, and as we begin this morning, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, for an opportunity to specially come apart and Think about the power of the gospel. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we look into your word, that your Holy Spirit would come, that he would teach us, that he would guide us into all truth, that he would convict us of sin and bring us to Jesus. And we thank you for this time and this place. In his name we pray. Amen. It has to be observed at the outset of this story that we celebrate once every year that what the scriptures record for us in the earlier parts of Mark is that Jesus Christ is dead. Uh, but he's not only dead, that's just part of the problem. The hopes and the aspirations of his disciples and his followers are dead as well. Can you, rem- can you just remind yourself what it must have felt like to be one of Jesus' disciples and to see what they saw, and to understand that Christ was dead. Virtually everyone who knew Jesus is stunned. They are so fearful, and not only because this one who raised people from the dead and healed the sick. You recall that the Pharisees hurl insults at Jesus while he's dying. Well, if he's the Son of God, let him pull himself off the cross. Let him raise himself. But Jesus' closest followers are very fearful and they have a lot to be afraid of. They're afraid that the Sanhedrin would come after them next. And I am sure that that was probably in someone's mind. So we look at the cross and we, we look and we see that crucifixion is not something a person would want to endure by choice or by chance. And certainly those close followers of Jesus who just witnessed the horrors and the agonies of a crucifixion, and this wasn't the only time they'd seen one, once again they see all of the agony that Jesus went through, and they realize, you know, the Romans are really good at this. They really know what they're doing. They're particularly good at cruelty. And as we read the pages of history outside of the scriptural text, we understand the Romans had this down to a science. They were expert at this. They were relentless. They were merciless. And they, as Jesus dies, cast lots underneath his cross. How unfeeling, how cruel that is. So we pick up the text in Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. Mark 15, verse 16. And here we are just before the crucifixion. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort, and a cohort's about 300 people. We don't know if they were all there or not, but at least this is where they were their barracks were. They dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took him the, the purple robe off of him and put on his own garments. And they led him out to crucify him. So those Roman soldiers probably some of the same ones who had just been taunting and beating him, saw Jesus' agony on the cross and were untouched by it, apparently. They knew the severity of their actions, and ultimately, when they finished, they knew he was dead. When it was over, you remember that Roman soldier, responsible in part for Jesus' agony, who perhaps drove those nails into his wrists, stood there peering up at Jesus' dead face, after Jesus cries out, it is finished. Looking up into his face. His declaration about Jesus' death is really unusual if you think about it. It's insightful. Look at verse 39 in our text in chapter 15. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. What a testimony. We know nothing further about this centurion. We do not know if he came to faith. We know nothing about this. Only he looks up into Jesus' dead face and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. So we have to look at it and we have to say to ourselves, there is no mistake here. This isn't a swooning experience like has been tried on us over the years. This isn't something where Jesus fainted and, 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 and he comes back uh, from the faint. Everybody knows Jesus is dead. Everybody. The disciples, the crowd, Pilate sends his soldiers out to break his legs so that he dies before the Sabbath begins. Joseph comes and asks for the body of our Lord. Well, he don't ask for a body unless you know the body is a body, not a person. And all the followers of Jesus, well they knew he was dead too. The record of scripture is straightforward on this subject. Jesus died on the cross. If you think about it for just a second, it would seem to me at that point in time and you and I were disciples of the Lord, wouldn't we think that his message was going to die as well? So now let's pick up the story a few hours later. If you go to chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So you don't come to a tomb to anoint a live guy, right? I mean, we're 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 all on the same page, right? Jesus is dead. The women who are so concerned here to minister to Jesus body as a final act of love, the very ones who stood at the foot of the cross when he was crucified, there they were when Jesus body was placed in the tomb 3 days ago. And they could not anoint Jesus' body then because it was the Sabbath. No work was allowed. They had to wait. But now they want to go to the tomb to perform this one last act of love and kindness to the Lord's body before they leave it. Their understanding, do you see through their eyes, their understanding? Let's anoint his body as one final act of love. Can you imagine the disillusionment in their hearts after all that Jesus had said and all that Jesus had done and all that Jesus had promised? Over all these last three years, it's all gone. His life is gone, His message is lost. I want you to get the sense about what these women were up against, what all the disciples and the followers of Christ were up against. It was hopeless. They're disillusioned. The second verse of the 16th chapter opens up to us. Very early, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So here we are on the first day of the week. We call it Sunday. Okay? Not sunrise, but just a little after sunrise. The narrative informs us of this little band of disciples making their way to the tomb and we watch them, and you can almost, as you watch them in your mind's eye and touch them with your heart of hearts this morning, you could almost feel for them, and you can almost feel their grief and feel their pain. Their depression is palpable in this story. In the third verse, they were saying to one another, who's going to roll the stone away for us from the entrance to the tomb? How are we going to get in there? And what the the Greek carries with it is the impossibility of the task at hand. They know as they approach this tomb that it has a stone rolled over it. It's impossible. That's what they're looking at. How are we in the world are we going to get past those soldiers? Every one of those guys is mean. Every one of them. They'd soon kill a Jew as look at him. How do we get past the seal of Rome? You recall the seal of Rome is on that stone as well. How in the world are we going to roll that huge stone away from the entrance? It's impossible to get past these soldiers. It's impossible to break the seal of Rome. It's impossible for them to move the stone at the entrance. But they keep on walking, lost perhaps in their grief and in their thoughts, toward what? Toward the impossible. What is about to dawn on them, in a spiritual sense, is beyond belief. What we are asked to believe as Christians is, in fact, beyond belief. We're not the Holy Spirit energizing the message. So the fourth verse of chapter 16. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Right here. Right now, the narrative stops. And I want you to notice that the impossible starts to fade into the miraculous. That's what's happening here. A miracle is about, has taken place, and they are about to experience part of this miracle. Now, here at this point of Mark's gospel, he informs us. He does it in a subtle way. He informs us that these women come to the tomb, and as they're coming, they're rehearsing their problem of even gaining entrance to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. And notice there's no looking around for the place. They know exactly where they're going. They were there three days ago. They rehearse the dilemma. They arrive, they look up, and they're startled by the fact there's not any soldiers there. No one to harass them. As they get even closer, they can see that the stone has been rolled away, the tomb is open, and they're bewildered, they're befuddled, they're they're speechless at what is taking place here. What they are seeing is perplexing to them and somewhat confusing to them as well. Grief and anxiety have, have captured these faithful women. Look at verse sixteen five, chapter sixteen five. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right. Wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Now, I would imagine that if you had just gone to a funeral three days ago and went to the place where your loved one was buried, and you came and you saw that the ground had been ripped open and the casket was standing open and the person wasn't there, you'd be a little dismayed. You'd be a little frightened, I would think. But I want you to notice that in the text, Mark is using word pictures for us to help us to get the the feeling, the the feel of it, to understand what's going on. They're word pictures that are meant to bring a correct response in my mind as I read it. And it's there to bring a correct response in your mind as well. So you have this young man sitting at the right. The right hand is a place of power, right? Right. All through Scripture, it's a place of power. He's in a white robe. All through Scripture, when you see angelic beings coming, they are all fearsome. Remember the announcement at Jesus' birth and this myriad of angels singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. You have the stone rolled away. It's rolled back. It's too big for me. It's too big for you. If we all got together, we might be able to move it, but these are a group of women. They're not strong. How did it get rolled back? Well, the angelic being rolled it back. So now here we are, 2,000 years later, and we ask ourselves, well, why is the tomb open? And so we think about this a minute, and we say, well, the tomb is open so that Jesus could get out the you know the the angel came and rolled the stone back and then Jesus could get out and nothing could be further from the truth folks it's not to let jesus out no it's not to let him out it's to let us see in it's to let those women see in to see what's taken place oh, i you know i grant you that they are befuddled that they are what the scripture says amazed the stone is rolled away for them To see what has taken place. And I would submit to you this morning that the stone is rolled away for you and for me. To see what has taken place. Mourning turns to amazement. I mean, put yourself in their place. I know it's difficult, but put yourself in their place. Words fail you, don't they? Verse 6. And the angel said to them, Don't don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So you'd be thinking right now if you had been perhaps one of these women. You've come to a tomb, hoping to get permission to anoint the body of a loved one, someone that you loved and you admired and You're still sad. You're deeply grieved. There's just nothing but a sense of loss in your heart. And you got up this morning and you knew what was ahead. You knew what you had to do. It's not a pleasant thing for you to do. No funeral is pleasant. No, No anointing of a body was meant to be pleasant. And with a heavy heart, you determine that you're going to do the difficult yet necessary work that you've been called to do. You walk to the tomb where you last saw the dead body and you find the body's gone. And a strange man starts telling you something you can't quite wrap your head around? This is amazing. And they are amazed. And what does he say? He is risen. You know, those are old words to us. I mean, we call out he is risen. He is risen indeed. But this is a totally new concept. He is risen. I don't even know if they got it. He's risen. He's not here. Well, yeah, we can see that. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. So, and as you stand there in your mind's eye and you try to take this information in, you do the best you can to understand this with your mind and with your heart. And you quickly become overwhelmed with the information. It's it's information overload is what it is. Wasn't it just hours ago we saw what happened to Jesus? Didn't I see him hanging on the cross? Didn't I hear him cry out, Tetelestei? Didn't I hear him cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here this angel, this person in white, is telling me, He is risen. He's not here. And I would say to you, That if you had been standing there, it would have been kind of the same response. Your brain can't take it in. Your brain can't take it in. And this is the dividing line between those who come to Christ by faith and those who will not. It is at the resurrection. Because some will not take it in. Some will not believe it. And so there you are, and you hear what the angel is saying, and your eyes move back and forth in confusion. Sure enough, the tomb is empty, and there's the grave clothes, and, and, and he's telling me he's risen, he's not here. Your throat closes up, and you begin to kind of breathe hard and gasp for air, and your heart is pounding. Stop, wait a minute, I, I need to think about this for a moment. I don't get it. But the man in a white robe just keeps on talking. Verse 7. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So here's the first command delivered to these who have come to anoint Jesus' body. Go tell his disciples. And did you get the other part of that? go tell his disciples and Peter now if you're familiar with a crucifixion story right it's Peter the mouthpiece of the entire band of guys you know and he's there and Jesus said i have to go to jerusalem and be crucified and and Peter what does he say you remember uh uh-uh. uh lord I'll always be with you. I'll always follow you. I'll go to death with you. And what happens? Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me. You'll deny me. Before he crows, you'll deny me three times. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And the disciples, what do they do? Well, they head for tall timber. I mean, some of them were running through the streets naked, clothes ripped off of them because the soldiers were chasing them. But we turn to Peter and we ask ourselves, can we imagine the stress that Peter's been under for the last three days? I don't imagine he's been uh, with the rest of the disciples. I, 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 I just don't think he was. I think that Peter was absolutely, utterly destroyed and dismayed at what he had done. And I'd like to submit to you that if the angel had just said to tell the disciples, Peter wouldn't have come. I don't think he would have shown up. But here we see something of the magnificent grace and love and forgiveness of God. And it gives me hope. I don't know about you. It gives me hope. I think that we can reassure ourselves because of Jesus' treatment of Peter of the same kind of treatment as we stand before the Lord some day. We who have failed the Lord in so many ways can be assured of our invitation to come and meet with the risen Lord as well. Tell the disciples, the angel says, tell Peter to come and meet with me in Galilee. Hmm. So what do you think the response of these women would be? Oh, well, I mean, you'd take all this in, right? And you'd become all of a sudden gung ho. And you would be rational and you would be fearless and you would have a reasoned response and you would become a, a dyed in the wool disciple of Jesus. Nobody could stop you from talking about what had just happened to you. Look at verse 8. They went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They ran away in silence. They didn't say anything to each other, let alone anybody else. Get me out of here. Have you ever had that feeling in your life at some momentous occasion? When you knew you were in a dangerous spot, perhaps? They were amazed. That word translated is kind of interesting. It means frightened. They were frightened out of their minds. They were so frightened that they were tromos, a Greek word that means they were trembling. They were quaking, quivering. They were traumatized by what had just taken place. They were astonished. Ecstasis is the Greek word. They were bewildered. What in the, can you, I, I just can't imagine. And they were silent. Have you ever been so afraid you can't say anything? You haven't lived yet. Here they are. So fearful, they can't even speak. And I think that their reaction, in some ways, is our reaction. I I really think that that's got something to do with why we have the attitudes that we have. They fled the scene in incoherent silence. And I truly think that if you and I faced this otherworldly being, you and I would also be afraid, and we'd also be astonished, and we'd also be fearful, and we would also be mute. We would not be able to speak. Now, the interesting thing here is that when you get down to verse 8, in the original manuscripts, that is exactly where the Gospel of Mark ends. So do you, do, you, do you get this? And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's the end of the Gospel of Mark. The rest is a gloss, what the theologians call a gloss. It's been added by some monk in the 13th century or something. We don't know exactly when, but it's added. The oldest manuscripts stop at verse 8. And it is artful, is it not? For Mark to stop right there, he stops and he says, What's your response to this? You see the response of these women. They were astonished, they were afraid. The power of God has been shown to these women in, in a way that is miraculous, it's indescribable. The, the, the end of the Gospel of Mark is artful and it's incredible and it's thoughtful. And it's built in there a provocation to you. You should be provoked in your thinking, in your mind's eye. What we should be provoked to is further study. If this is true, if what these women experienced is true, there are certainly ramifications to what they saw. And I want to remind you that these are eyewitnesses accounts preserved as no other written thing has been preserved down through history. There is more manuscript evidence for the scriptures than any other ancient writing. As a matter of fact, we quote ancient writings for which we have no originals. So Mark, he just takes it and he says, well, I'm not going to solve this mystery for you. You solve it. I'm not going to resolve this. I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to give you even closure. I'm just going to say what I said right there in verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling, and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Whoa. We better start looking at the other Gospels, right? We better start studying and thinking about if this story is true, then what? What difference does it make to us 2,000 years later. So there's ambiguity aplenty. Amidst an ending of subtlety and artful genius, Mark stops. And he says, I'm not going to spoon feed you. I'm not going to resolve the problem for you. I'm not going to give you the answer to the unanswerable or the knowledge of the unknowable. I'm just going to leave it there. You know, the ladies, they got afraid and they ran. The call to his disciples and to Peter is what? It goes right back to the beginning. They go to Galilee. In chapter 1, verse 14, the last part, it says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And that is what Jesus calls us to this morning. To repent, to turn away from sin and sadness to turn away from the life that we have led up to this point, to look into that empty tomb and say to ourselves, if Jesus rose from the dead in fact, then I'd better start listening to what he had to say. And I believe me, Jesus had a lot to say about you and about me. He says it about me. So here we sit. Here we are today and we hear the impossible story one more time. This is my 38th time to tell it. That takes some artful creativity. And here we are. This story is impossible. I understand that. And the only thing that I ask of you today, take this story of Jesus' resurrection home with you. If you're astonished at what I have just read to you from the Gospel of Mark, Look into that empty tomb. There is more evidence in this scripture than, than you actually need. And I would encourage you to wonder at what you see by faith. Realize this fact with me, that if Jesus, in fact, rose from the grave, if he came away from that crucifixion three days later alive, then shouldn't we take the gospel message seriously? Your life depends on it. Jesus calls to our hearts even still today through the Holy Spirit and he's asking us to believe him for salvation. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's not optional, folks. The gospel is clear. Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, is the one who stands at our heart's door knocking, asking to come in. He wants to give you Forgiveness, listen to the gospel message, I adjure you. We should be listening very, very carefully. What's going on here? Well, Jesus proved his message. How did he prove his message? By the fact that he said, I will go to Jerusalem and they will crucify me, but I will rise again on the third day. Believe him. Believe him right now. And he'll save you from your sins. He'll deliver you safely into his everlasting kingdom. And if you begin, if you're challenged by this verse 8. And you're challenged to go back and study. You will find amazing things that the scripture says eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard. The wonderful things that God has laid up in store for those that love him. Believe him. Jesus rose from the tomb. He promises to everyone who will come to him to deliver you and me from death and to give us eternal life with him. I close with this verse of scripture from Romans the 8th chapter. Just listen to it. Romans eight eleven. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Yes, Christ is risen, and he promises us that we will rise again. He is risen. risen Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that we can look into it, and it can challenge us from so far away, and yet it can be right close to us even this morning. So Lord, as we consider these things during the week ahead, I pray that Satan would not be able to pluck this word from our hearts, but that we'd be challenged by it, that we would listen to it, that we would give it audience, that we would ask you, Lord, if this is real, reveal yourself to me. And he will. And we promise, Father, that we will by faith follow your Son, who you gave to us to pay the price for our sins, and you proved that you would do it because you raised Jesus from the dead. We thank you, and we praise you in his name.